And now, ladies and gentlemen, check it out. You've got to start somewhere. The podcast that takes you behind the scenes of show business to prove there's no such thing as an overnight success. With your host, Rachel Corbett. Thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to the show. Today I'm very excited about the guest because he is a bit of a slashy. He's done all sorts of things, comedian, actor, writer, radio and TV presenter, producer, director and one of the hosts of the project. It is the lovely Peter Hellier. Thank you, Rachel. I'm glad you didn't describe me as a slushy. I thought that may have been coming as well. It's part of my dark past. But uh, thank you for having me on. Am I the first person to be on this show who can claim to be a fan of the show? Yes, you because, are. Because yeah, it's early days, and I'm sure those who have been uh, were guests early, the show wasn't out yet. True, yeah. So, but I have been listening, and uh, congratulations! It's a great podcast. I appreciate your support because often when I do the project, you'll give me a little. Oh, I heard this, or I heard that, or I heard this, and you know, when I, you- I've started fangirling around you a little bit, to be honest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But I like it because, you know, when you're making things, you would know where you've made a million things. You often think, is anybody going to care? Is yeah. anybody going to be interested? I think it's really important, though, to reach out to the people. And I'm in a privileged situation where often I can um, reach out to people and say, you know, congratulations on doing this. And mm. I'm getting them and making this podcast or, or in that first episode of, you know, whatever show it might be or, or the radio, getting a radio gig or, or, or whatever. So I, I do try to, certainly not in a fake way, I, I try to make sure I've... Oh, I, I felt ha- it was a little fake, but... Uh. The, well, the first couple of weeks, and I actually listened to it, I thought, actually, it's actually pretty good. So I started citing examples and... <laughs> yeah. yeah, the first couple of weeks you were like, you were just saying the name that was on the uh, title description uh, and then you got a bit deeper into the detail. I was reading it off my iPhone. <laughs> yeah. It was cleverly really, hidden under the table. Really enjoyed episode one, Whipper. Love that one. <laughs> yeah, but you've gotten a bit better on the details. Actually, that's an interesting point because you're right. You are at that point now where you are, you know, one of the more well-known people in Australian media. So you can put a call in or a text in or a tweet into somebody and say really love that and it would actually mean a lot to people I certainly feel you know chuffed that you like the show but you are in a position where you could if you heard somebody's podcast and they were just starting out and they got a tweet or something from Peter Hellier that would mean a huge amount there's a weight in your sort of I mean it's hard for me to have perspective on that but I do you know I mean I have been doing this for long enough to know that it might it might be a nice thing to mm. hear or to, to, to read. Um, and I certainly know and have been thankful for the people who were good to me in my early days of stand-up comedy and television and when people said nice things. I remember reading that Sean McAuliffe, you know, thought I was funny and you know, that was in print and I was, I'd never met him and I was yeah. like, oh, my God, Sean McAuliffe said that. You know, and so it's, um, yeah, it is lovely. So I've tried to kind of, you know, uh, keep that in mind. But, I mean, look, it's not a strategy. It's, not, it's just something mm. that's it's, it's just, I think it's just part of my nature. I like, I like being part of a, a good industry and I want it to be good and, and better. And, and uh, so when I see something I really like... Uh, I want to encourage people to, to keep doing that. Uh, let me just uh, semi-begin because we've al- already done a bit of yapping, but what is your full name? Mm, mm. Peter Jason Matthew Hallier. Why in your Wikipedia mm. page does it say Peter Nice Gary Hellier? <laughs> <laughs> hey, oh, well, I don't know. I've not been on my Wikipedia page for uh, for quite a few years, so I have no idea what's in there. I know 
There used to be the photo they use. Is it still the Strawny in the Celebrity Grand Prix? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I love- I've, got a, I've got a feeling. I, I think the reason I, I mean, I'm not sure how many people, why you would be on your, your own Wikipedia page anyway, but I've got a feeling that people or the person who runs my Wikipedia page, and obviously lots of people can jump in. I remember years ago thinking, I'm not sure if they're the biggest fans of mine because <laughs> it's, it, they really. I feel like most of the things I've done have worked. I've been very lucky, but it really made it seem like all of the things I'd done had failed had miserably. Fail. <laughs> um, which, you know, eventually a show like Rove Live did come to an end, but mm. it came to an end after 10 years before the game came to an end after 12 years. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I haven't been back on the Wikipedia page, but I'm glad they're, they're um, nice, Gary. I'm not even sure. Usually sometimes that can be a reference to something you've, you've put out there. I love um, Wikipedia pages and just having a quick perusal when I do mm. this show because the number of bullshit entries that just you're like, where are people getting this information? And you're right. As a person in the media, you don't tend to go on your Wikipedia page. So you've got no idea no. what is on there. And for most people, that is their sole source of information about individuals and topics and that kind of stuff. And then you go on and you're like, this is what people have been thinking about me the whole time, that my middle name is Nice Gary? Like, how do you even come up with that? So what? when did you first start doing comedy? When was your first sort of foray into it? Well, my first gig was October 27th, 1996. I booked into the ESPY on, at St Kilda, which was a, a famous kind of room, uh, which sadly doesn't uh, run anymore, the Gershwin Room. Uh, it's a beautiful room, and uh, you used to basically every Melbourne comedian and any Australian comedian who would want to start in Melbourne would book, and you'd speak to a guy called Trevor. Trevor was a great guy, a bit of a stoner, mm-hmm. um, and he would uh, book you in, and he would ask two questions: Have you got five minutes, and do you know how to hold a microphone? <laughs> and I was confident I had five minutes, and I was pretty sure I could hold a mic. So I said, "Yep, yep, no, no worries at all." And he, you, you get put into this lineup, and they have a, like an MC, and usually uh, somebody well known closes the show. But it goes like the entire Sunday afternoon; it's, it's like a marathon, and. The night before, I didn't. I didn't tell anyone. I was like, "No, I'm going to do this on my own. I don't want, you know, a false economy. I want to go down and just see how good I am, mm. you know." And uh, night before, I went to my mate's twenty first, Scotty Laughter Leaders, in the backyard in Bandura, <laughs> uh, and I was doing the speech and uh, nailed the speech, just like nailed the speech. <laughs> yeah. And had a few beers and just told everyone, I'm starting my stand-up comedy career oh, tomorrow. <laughs> like, and everyone's like, well, we've got to come down yeah. and see it. You had a little taste of the applause and you were like, I want more of this. I want more of this. <laughs> so, um, yeah, about uh, about 10 mates came down. But there's probably about, it's always got good crowds. So there's about 200 people there. You and were 21 at the time? I was 21 and I walked... I remember walking, I had my, my, my five minutes, I remember walking to the microphone stand and I wore a, um, like a dinner suit because I didn't, know, I didn't know who I was yet and I wanted to separate myself on stage to what I, you know, just a casual clothes hoodie kind of wearing Right, so, so it wasn't like the first day on the job thing where, you know, the people that turn up for their first day on the job at McDonald's and they rock up in a suit and yeah. then they were, oh, I've, I've overdressed. It wasn't yeah. that, it was that you had actually no, wanted to set yourself apart. I was setting myself apart. I didn't go in a microfiber suit, uh, you know, with a, with a Davenport novelty tie. Uh, with a briefcase with the Herald Sun and the banana in it. No, it was it was more about the, you know, and I didn't even know 
what my voice was going to be like when I, when I, you know, I didn't know how the words were going to come out. I think a lot of comedians early on, they're more joke-based mm-hmm. than they are routine-based. So I had a lot of jokes. But had you practiced those? I had, had you practiced. Said it over and I and over? Of, every time it was a little bit different and mm-hmm. I knew it. I'd really prepared. Mm. But the one thing I wasn't sure about was which routine to start with. And I walked to the microphone stand I've actually got the, the, my first gig on VHS. I know Lawrence was saying he has he oh, has two. Oh, that's cool. It's actually uh, my l- latest tour, which I recorded for Channel 10 called One Hot Mess. On the DVD, we're going to put the, the first gig on, on that as, oh, as a, a bonus feature. And I, mean, I remember watching it back, and I thought I got to the mic stand and like, tried to really rip the microphone out of the stand, like, and, but I couldn't get it out. Mm. And I thought I was really like tugging at it. And I, I, when I watched it back, I realized it was the most placid little like. I was almost scared of the mic. <laughs> I remember thinking, oh, shit, maybe I don't know how to hold a microphone. So I stood at the microphone stand, mm. never took it out of the stand. Um, and I still had this bottle of water that I just had in my hand yep. that I forgot to put down. Don't know what to do with your hands. No, I don't know my hand. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Ricky Bobby. Yep. Um, and my choices were between this fish and chip uh, joke, uh, shop joke that I had and this root joke about phone sex. And I remember getting to the microphone stand, still not knowing, and just, I'm not sure, I can't remember the sighting, but the fish and chip joke kind of came out first. And it was great. Like, it worked beautifully. And I'll tell you the joke. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's, it's a joke uh, that works really well in Melbourne uh, and Adelaide and, and, and Perth and Tasmania, but not in, in Sydney and, and Queensland. The joke is, I walked into, I've had a bad start to the week. I walked into a fish and chip shop and accidentally ordered maximum chips. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> so this is the thing. In Melbourne, <laughs> yeah. you order minimum chips. So yeah. you order maximum chips, Rachel. There's going to be a lot of chips. <laughs> so I got there's a couple of like you know lines after that about the amount of chips and two drunk fat guys dressed as seagulls came to the house looking for the chips and, and like so there's a couple of little after lines, but it worked and I was away yeah. and uh, I made the right choice. The rest of the gig went really well. I had a, had a great gig and just on that with that fish and chip joke. About a year into my stand up career, I got to go to Sydney on this like tour. Um, and did the Harold Park Hotel, the famous, legendary oh, Harold Park room. Hotel. And I'd seen American Rosso perform there. So I was like, oh, this is going to be great. This is going to be awesome. And I've got my opener, Fish and Chips. <laughs> and, um, you know, I walked out, did that as my opener and learned the lesson. Oh. Just do some research about <laughs> local areas, <laughs> about terminology, vernacular, and it died. At the gig, I got back on track. But it was um, it was it was a good lesson uh, to learn, and and so the first gig did the second gig uh, about a month later was great. It went even better. Then the third gig was horrible. Oh really? Yeah, because I started like doing new material, and um, that wasn't really you know kind of not as baked as the other stuff. And I was talking to the audience a bit of hey, where are you from? And they would say Croydon, and I was like I got nothing about <laughs> Croydon. What do you do? <laughs> I work in IT. Oh, got nothing on. Got nothing there. And like it was just awful. And my sister had brought her new boyfriend oh, that I hadn't God. met yet and uh, who she's now married to. Uh, he, it was just so excruciating. And I remember going down to – it was at the SB again. And I went down to St. Kilda Beach and just got – there's a bottle shop at the SB. And I got – and I don't know why. This is oh, – you're not in your right head. I was like heartbroken. It's like – the what happened what just happened why wasn't this gig like the other gigs mm. and maybe I, I can't do this for this maybe the dream is dead so i got like a six pack of udls I, oh. like, I don't know why i got udls 
I don't know why they were UDLs. I thought uh, you were going to say the only other option in my head I had that was that you bought like a 500 mil bottle of Maduri and just sculpted And this had me. illusion shakers on the beach. No, I got UDLs and I started oh. drinking UDLs. I mean, my sister just like rubbing my back and my oh. this her new boyfriend who you know I hadn't met just like being kind of awkward and just going, oh, I thought it was pretty good. Oh. <laughs> oh, good Lord. Did you, do you think it was because you had an inflated sense of confidence because of those early I reckon gigs. it was a part of me that kind of thought, I, I, good, I can do this. Yeah, I can right. do this. And and not realising that every gig is different. Mm. And um, and new material needs, you know, to be really worked and you can't go out with, a, you know, uh, an idea that's like a premise. It probably, I was probably going out with premises on that third gig, not actual And a huge lack of geographical lines. knowledge. Yeah, and I, exactly. <laughs> and also not... Not having the um, artillery to kind of like sometimes I'll start gigs with new material now because I'm just like, well, I know I can get it back on track. Mm. No gig's going to break me now. Like no, no gigs make or break. Mm. You know, I did a gig in uh, Fairfield last night at the room that Dave O'Neill runs, and I was committed to doing ninety percent new material. And I knew I just had a joke that I opened my last tour with, and a routine at the end from about uh, two shows ago that I thought. If, if it goes a bit off track, then I've just got a routine that is safe and I know it's funny, the audience is going to love it. And, you know, and there was some highs and lows in, in, the, in the new material and I go, okay, well, that works and okay, that needs some work. But, you know, you don't go out kind of going, oh, my God, if I don't laugh at this, I'm going to... And that's, that's what you earn, you know, yeah. by doing... Well, by you've doing. got a decent body of work now and you've, uh, you've accomplished a lot, so it's not like you're going out there thinking, am I any good? You know you're capable of this. Well, and when I go to do stand-up now, I've got family, I've got three boys, and I'm like, well, I can't just go and do these gigs just to feel like a rock star comedian all the time, you know, because I can go and do a gig. I could have done that gig last night and done, you know, really well-worn kind of material that I know inside out and mm-hmm. I know where all the laughs are and and had the best night and felt like, oh, I right now I'm the greatest comedian in the world. <laughs> yeah. um, but if I'm going to leave my wife with the kids and go out at night and, and, and after I've already been at work all day, there needs to be something more. There needs to be something that helps the progression of my stand-up comedy career, which is always building towards the next show. Do you feel um, – I, I was watching that documentary about Jerry Seinfeld, mm, comedian, where him and Orny Adams? Orny Adams, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that sense that when – Orny Adams used to get so angry because Jerry Seinfeld would walk into the room and get applause just for standing there just because he was Jerry Seinfeld. Do you feel when you're doing new material because there's a lot of people that love what you've done and, and you have like a, a soft spot in their heart already, do you feel like it's still hard work to get the audience on side for some of that new material? Are they still happy to tell you when they don't like oh, it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah? And there's a great thing, that quote by Colin Quinn in that documentary where he says – even if you're famous, like if you take Jack Nicholson, the most revered man in Hollywood, if he was to walk out on stage, there'd be like a grace period of, you might, you might have said like seven minutes, or maybe maybe not even that, maybe it was three minutes, mm. where he'd be like laughing at everything, anything he said, and then after they'd be like, okay, you've been on stage for a few minutes now, Jack, we need some laughs. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. So there's... There is a bit of that. And I mean, last night I did a routine about feminism and I wasn't sure how it was going to go. There's certainly something in that in, in there, but it's not ready yet, you know. But I, there's a, the only way you get it ready is by doing it on stage. Mm. And this is where it's really, people often say, oh, is it, you know, oh, being a comedian must be really tough. And it's not, it's, it's great. But the tough bit of it is, is that moment. Like that when you are driving to a gig 
I mean, the fun stuff is when you get to play a thousand people, mm-hmm. you know, at a, at a comedy festival, you yeah. know, or, or, or two and a half thousand people at the Enmore Theatre. Like that's where it's glorious. That's where it's just it's just fun. But you, you earn that because you've driven to a crowd of sixty people, sometimes le- you know less than that, to do material that you're not completely sure about yet, mm. and knowing there'll be people in that audience who'll see that and walk away going, "Oh, Peter, he wasn't as funny as I thought he was." Yeah, does that? You know, how does that play on your mind? Well, you just have to, you know, make sure that the other stuff. There is some good stuff, so you mm. can't. And I'm always aware that people have paid money to come see a show, so I can't be completely indulgent and make it all about unless it's a new material type of night. Mm. I always, that's why I had that routine at the end, which I thought was going to be, you know, is safe as houses. Uh, and I knew that if it, if I had one or two things that didn't work, the new material, I, I would have probably maybe gone, okay, let's just steady up here with some, you know. And that's where you have this artillery. You have this artillery of 21 years of doing stand-up comedy mm. where you can call on stuff on stage. And that's why you don't feel the panic as much as somebody who's on their third gig and mm. doesn't know where Croydon is. <laughs> when did you first realise, I think I am funny? At school, the teachers used to allow me to... There's a humanities teacher who allowed me to host the class when they did like oral presentations. Oh, yeah. So this is the day of Tonight Live with Steve Weisard. Yep. And I love that so much. She would sit in my seat and I'd sit at the desk and she would let me kind of give the introductions uh, to people. I used to do like little school plays that I would do on my off my own steam. There's no reason for me to do them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, I just loved getting laughs. And um, I loved watching television. And I, you know, I used to believe that I was watching television with a purpose. Like I was trying to kind of dissect. Research. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, was, I actually said that to my dad. He goes, you know, you're wasting your time watching so much television. I said, well, maybe I might work in television one day and maybe I'm working at what I like and what I don't like. How you know? old were you? That is, that's I a reckon, pretty interesting kind of insight to have. I was about 13 or 14 when I said this, wow. you know, I was saying that. And yeah, I remember in politics in year 11, I was studying politics and a teacher, Ross Smith, Roscoe, uh, he... <laughs> He had a rule, and his rule was you can make a joke, and this is for the whole class, you can make a joke at any point in my class mm-hmm. as long as it's funny. Oh, if it's funny, cool. you stay. If it's not funny, you're out. Oh, I'm liking this. And Roscoe. I loved it. I was like, this yeah. is amazing. This is like, this is like built for me. I'm just, you know, and it, it kind of, Jerry Seinfeld says he wasn't a class clown, he was a class comedian. And this was a, a way of splitting the class comedians and the class clowns because mm. the class clowns would try to be funny and they're like, no, you haven't got the, the skills, you haven't got the craft. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but the class, yeah. class comedian, uh, comedians, uh, I wasn't the only one, uh, we did and we were able to, you know, get jokes away and stay in the class. I feel like being, you know, having that ability to sort of make people laugh, especially in school, is such a protector in that environment where you're trying to work out who the hell am I? How do I make friends? How do I get into these groups that make sure I've got enough of a like social fabric here that I feel okay? Yeah. It's such a skill yeah. to get through those early years. And it's a, it's a, it's a defensive mechanism. Yeah, this may yeah. shock you, Rachel, but I was a bit of a chubby kid. Um, <laughs> no. no. No, seriously. No. <laughs> seriously. I know. And, you know, so at the time I probably wasn't thinking like this, but I think I look back at it now and I go, it probably was partly a defensive mechanism. Get on the front foot. Do the jokes yourself before they do the jokes. And as a result, I've never kind of received any kind of name calling really. Mm. I mean, I was, you know, I was lucky enough to have a really great group of friends going through primary school and then into high school and got along with most of the kids in the year, year level. Yeah. I The only really bad uh, taunt I remember was at the year eight dance when Simon yelled across the dance floor, Rachel Corbett's frigid. And it hurt so much because it was true. <laughs> 
Um, I'd but how things have changed. <laughs> I realised I'd been found out. I thought that I had like put up the you know veneer of yeah. this very confident young woman. I wasn't fooling anybody. That was pre-television radio, Rachel Corbett. Of course, uh, things have changed. <laughs> they have um, changed. But uh, I remember being really relieved once I got through school that nobody picked up that you could quite easily uh, rhyme Hallie with Smellia. I was like, how did nobody see Never. that? I kind of kept that under my belt. Like, how could nobody pick that up? You've literally gotten to the end of school puffing and panting in relief like, oh, <laughs> I, literally, I made it. I was at the, the gate, at the exit gate, this guy, year 12, this guy, Smellia, you never saw it. You never saw it, yours. So when you were researching on your watching TV, you know, while you were saying I might work in TV one day, had you gotten that dream somehow ingrained in you? Were you thinking that's what I wanted to do? What did you want to do well, between well, leaving school and getting on stage at 21? No, I think by the time I was leaving school, I, I was committed to being... Actually, I wanted to make films and I thought if I do stand-up comedy, which I had fallen in love with through watching a big gig and having footy club comedy nights and, and you know, seeing Trevor Marmalade and, mm-hmm. and just going, oh, it looks amazing. And I saw Greg Fleet at the comedy club when I was 15 and just going, oh, my God, this is I think this is what I want to do. So I just kind of kept the journal from about 15 to 21 or so and this of jokes and this ideas and earlier I wanted to be a zookeeper that was my first thing I really wanted to do and then I realised I didn't particularly like handling animals <laughs> Important. so yeah hands yeah. off zookeepers yeah. aren't, aren't um, really in demand so uh, and then I thought about, about acting but that was the stage where the first sentence you heard shooting back at you when you even whispered that you wanted perhaps become an actor was 99% of actors are out of work. I think now it's 97. Um, <laughs> but um, thank you, Netflix. Um, but it's uh, – and that was a stage where – and Australians, it was only the local industry. There was no – going over and being a, a famous actor in America, was that was a stupid idea. And it really was Mel Gibson and Nicole Kidman and Paul Hogan who kind of started you – know, I remember being genuinely excited by their success mm. and seeing Paul Hogan host – the Academy Awards and going, oh, my God. I remember seeing Crocodile Dundee in the cinema, you know, a couple of times and just being, oh, my God. You know, I, I kind of grew up in this really lovely time where Australian cinema had, like, the Man for Snowy River and Crocodile Dundee's, you know, our own stories in our own cinemas and this explosion of music from, like, from grade five to grade six. I think the albums Kick, Diesel and Dust, Man of Colours by Ice House. Crowded House's debut album mm. and Who Degrees Blow Your Cool all came out. So, like, I've re- and Paul Kelly was around. So, yeah. I loved, I really grew up with a really deep love of Australian entertainment. Mm. Um, so, despite that, I kind of just thought, oh, well, I can't be an actor because there's, there's no future in it. But then, uh, you know, I started seeing comedy and, and thinking, well, let's just give it a go. And I just didn't really have anything else that I wanted to do. What I thought of journalism for a little bit. but Did yeah. you go to uni? I applied for two courses, I think, uh, Melbourne Law, mm-hmm. uh, and that was just a joke because I had no chance of getting into <laughs> Melbourne Law. And the other one was a professional writing course at RMIT, which I got knocked back from. Ironically, a year ago, I was invited to go speak to the students of professional <laughs> writing at RMIT, which was lovely. And the first thing I mentioned was they were already in front of me at that stage because uh, I was knocked back from this very course. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Good, good lesson, though, I think at that age you think it's the end of the world. Yeah. But a good lesson in the fact that there is always a way around. If you are built for it and if you are a creative person that wants to make stuff, you will get there eventually. I've still got rejection letters 
from Neighbours, as far as for writing for Neighbours. Oh, really? Um, for Triple R, we're looking for something. And I, I think Kate Lambrook's even, when Kate Lambrook was working on that show, I got, I got a rejection letter from them. I think one thing that was good, I Film Victoria ran a screenwriter scheme, a new screenwriter, screenwriter scheme. And I, well, I wrote a script. Uh, when I was about 17. But it was a really dark, nothing comedic about it. Yeah. It was about a, a guy who found uh, he wanted to be like a famous director and he, he, but he couldn't find what he wanted to make. And he found this um, heroin addict OD'd in the bathroom and decided to follow her around with a camera. So this is kind this of like. This is actually kind of a cool idea. Yeah. And this was like 1992. So this is like pre a lot of these really big reality shows. Mm and then his friend uh, is like the cameraman and it becomes like, kind of like this triangle because the director's kind of like pushing this girl but towards her demise and the cameraman's kind of falling in love with this girl and yeah and they met they kind of met with me and uh, you know and they said listen we we love it would you consider not making it as dark as it is mm. and I was like no no it is what it is and uh, <laughs> you know hell yeah don't budge <laughs> And then they, um, I understand you guys have been doing this for a while, but I don't know if you know. Uh, I'm 17. I've had quite a bit of life experience. I know, I know what I'm doing. So I, um, yeah, I, um, uh, they wished me all the best and said, if there's anything we can do to you know, help support you. And um, uh, but, but it was really great because you know I was 17 and they met with me. You wow. know, I went and had a coffee in the city uh, with them, and that was amazing. And you just, you just, if you can get these little guides that you're on the right track. I remember writing you know, that, that book that I ended up losing in a taxi, by the way. Um, oh, no. Yeah, with the, the years of like you know, jokes, which I, I, I always believe is like a, a golden little joke book. Like the, it's in the suitcase in Pulp Fiction. But if you open it, it's a glow of gold. <laughs> but it's probably full of shit, to be honest. Let's face it. But I remember writing a couple of jokes that Jim Owen ended up doing, like just as a coincidence. Mm. Like, And I remember a mate who I would often speak, tell these jokes to, he's, he said, ah, oh, you must be, are you, are you, are you, you know, disappointed? I go, no, this is great. I'm on the right path. This is yeah. Jim Owen. Yeah, yeah, like, Jim yeah. Owen's the hottest comedian, you know, at least one of the hottest comedians in the country, you know, and if I'm somehow like, you know, he, if he's, we're thinking, you know, for even for a couple of seconds the same way, then maybe, I, you know, maybe I'm on you the right track. You could do it. Was it all a bunch of sort of incremental steps towards the stand-up and then to where you are, or did you sort of veer off the path and work doing something else for a while? And Yes, I was working at Dan Murphy Sellers, um, the bottle <laughs> shop. Um, You're just smashing back UDL cans in the back <laughs> Yeah, yeah that's, I swear I didn't knock off any UDLs. They were so good to me because the manager at the time, Pete Johns, he was in a band called Desert Mouth. Oh, hello. Yeah. And uh, they used to play the SB a bit as well. Mm-hmm. And so he had a bit of um, simpatico, is that the term, yeah. uh, for what I was doing uh, as well. So he would he would know that I'd be in the back storeroom, not packing boxes, that I was you know, writing comedy routines and, and that stuff. And, you know, I used to be the kind of guy who would go for like a two-hour shit <laughs> <laughs> to avoid to avoid work. Yeah. My legs are, you know, getting lactic yeah. acid build up. And just numb. <laughs> <laughs> But you feel like, hell are you in there? Like, How long is this shit going for? <laughs> so was that the only sort of um, normal job you had before you started doing the telly stuff? I did a radio course. Um, there's a program called Leap. Mm. Uh, I forget what it stands for, but I went overseas chasing a girl and then, this is a random girl. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I had a Finnish girlfriend who uh, went back to Finland because she's an exchange student. So I went uh, after her 
and spent about six months overseas, then came back and there was this thing where you could sign up, the government would pay you basically to do a radio course for, I was going to say six weeks, but it felt more like six months, to be honest. Can you imagine that passing in the budget these days? Oh, no. No, it's just funny, isn't it? <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's, and I was, between that and doing uh, Channel 31, yeah. which, you know, basically no longer exists, thanks to the cuts, to the arts, it's, it's I've been very lucky to come through when I did. Um, and I did that and I met some great people and that's where I met Merrick. Uh, Merrick was the first person I met because my co-host, uh, we started doing a show on the Friday Morning Magazine mm. um, and we didn't name the show. It was like Monday Morning Magazine, <laughs> Tuesday Morning Magazine, Wednesday and we were we did the Friday shift. Right, yep. And my co-host, James Brasher, who is possibly the funniest man I know outside of comedy, uh, we used to do a show together and he went to school with Merrick and he brought Merrick in for an interview. He goes, I can get this, I can get Merrick to come in for an interview and that's when I, I met Merrick. So how old were you then? I would have, been 19. Wow. And he, Merritt was doing a gig down the Armadale and I went down and, and saw him then. I remember him wearing checkered pants and making jokes about redheads in the army. And I said, I like this guy. Classic <laughs> mess. Yeah, classic mess. And then they were the first people who took me under their wing, like Merrick and Ross. I was just blown away by what they were doing. They were doing these shows. They were rock shows, you know, mm. and then off their own steam. They were kind of a little bit outside the industry. It used to be like me and like Fleety, kind of were the only comedians, you know, kind of that I really remember kind of frequently being there. And then eventually they would, I was supporting them. And I, eventually I was on the poster, you know, for the Electric Boogaloo shows. And, and you know, and and, uh, and then they got me on Triple J doing this um, Peter Halley PI where I would do these challenges and I'd you know, do Bev and the Musical and, and um, which got weirdly got to the number 35 in the Triple J was 100 that year. <laughs> um, so it was kind of this really weird kind of thing but they were like the first even before I met Rove you know they were the first um, people who really took me under their wing and, and I'd help them shoot videos for their shows and, and do anything anything they asked I was like yep I am whatever because I want to be a part of this I'll, and I love that people watch those guys and they just wanted to have a beer with those guys after yeah. the show and that's I think that's what's really special you know if you can get that not every comedian feels like that you know but I, I feel like I'm a pub comic you know yeah. I'm a pub comic who gets to play theatres um, but um yeah, I thought it was a real. It's such a special thing. And I remember the best advice. If you, you may be going to ask me that later, but I'll, I'll, I'll save it for later. But Russell gave me some great advice. No, you tell me now. Okay, yeah. the, the advice he gave me was um, he said comedy's about ideas, and it's so true. Mm. And that's what I try to tell everyone: have ideas for everything. Mm-hmm. Have ideas for podcasts. Have ideas for movies, for TV shows, all kinds of TV shows, all kinds of movies. Have ideas for for jokes, you know, uh, for a web series, you know. Let's, Anything, mm. for articles, columns, you know, there's so much media now. I cannot believe when I talk to people and they're like, I just don't have any ideas. Yeah, I know. So like, don't do this anymore. <laughs> yeah, totally. Because like, my biggest fear is not realising half the ideas that totally. I have. Totally. And sometimes I, I get into the trap of not being able to choose which one to kind of really kind of go full throttle for next. I also get fearful that some of them are going to be done in the time that I it takes me to get them done. And That's... especially the ones I'm super passionate about. I think if I see this pop up somewhere, I am going to kick myself. I have a, a film idea. And funnily enough, I was hoping to, uh, I was thinking yesterday, I should actually meet with the people uh, like this week. I was going to actually try to see if I can see them tomorrow. Because I'm like, this has been in my head for years now. Yeah. And somebody's going to do it. And it's... The thing I learned about the movie that I did is is that you really need a really strong hook. You mm-hmm. know, I've been asked a lot why I haven't I done another movie after I Love You Too, and the reason is 
the landscape is a tricky one. Mm. It's a really tricky one. And I love you did quite well, but it probably lacked that real hook that you need to kind of go, oh, I need to see that. And our thing was probably that it was a romantic comedy and we don't make many romantic comedies, but that's probably not strong enough really to... To, especially when we, you know, when we went to the American market and we got a great reaction, but it was like we have Jennifer Aniston and Cameron Diaz and you know, Catherine yeah, Heigl yeah. at the time doing yep. these comedies. You know, um, no offense to Brennan Cowell and mm. Yvonne Strahovski, and we had Peter Dinklage pre Game of Thro- uh, Thrones. Uh, but the one I, yeah, I have this one idea, and it's not a comedy, but it's like whoever does it first, it's going it to be great. To be you, yeah, and it's going to be me because I've, I've got the idea and I've got the twist on the idea. That make, it's kind of half built on something like an urban legend. You have to have this meeting this week. Yeah, I know. I, I feel like it's out there, you know. Uh, now that you've said it, now I think sometimes it's like you have to mention it to somebody or say it or book, you need to be held accountable. And I've started doing that. And I've written probably about 30 pages of a script and like a bit of a breakdown and um, and I've told a few people. And whoever I've told, I'll, I'll, tell, you off, I'll tell you off air, mm-hmm. um, people go, yeah do that you must do that i, I want to go back at, at, and talk about um merrick and rosso and that relationship and and the idea of having those long-standing friendships that have come yeah. through over the years I, I think in this business sometimes especially when certain people get to certain different levels of success there is i think a sense because some people do think about relationships in an opportunistic way and you'll notice when you meet somebody that thinks that they can get something from you there yeah. is definitely that sense so so the higher you climb the ladder the more that becomes a part of your analysis I think of different people that you meet it's like oh do you want something from me because you have a lot more sort of cachet than they do and that that can come into play but when you have friendships that started out when you were all nobody just throwing shit against a wall oh, yeah. those are the friendships that are so nice to have through your entire career because you know they were based before you had any kind of profile. And it's pretty rare to have those kind of long-lasting friendships from when you were 19 in this business, even before. So it's not like you met in media. You met sort of, you know, even beforehand. Plenty Valley FM is media. I mean, (laughs) come on. Friday Morning Magazine. (laughs) I mean, did you get the Mick Thomas interview? (laughs) Actually, I do remember you coming on to the show that Mary... Eric and I and Jules Schiller used to do, and you and Mez did the, did the sketch. Reenactment. Yeah. You did the reenactment of Plenty Valley of Fam, which, <laughs> which I must, I must see. I keep everything. I'm going to see if I can find that, and if I can, I'll, I'll insert a little bit into the into the podcast. Do we do, we do uh, the reenactment of me being our political reporter at the uh, election? Because I, I feel no. like. I'm- I've done that somewhere where I uh, maybe I did it on one of my own radio shows. Where, in fact, I think I did because they sent me down to cover the election at the local um, Labor headquarters. And I, you know, even though I'd studied politics and I, I didn't really know much. And I saw your coverage of the of the budget on the po- project the other night. Yeah, you got well, no idea. Hey, I've come a. Oh, I was going to say I've come a long way, but maybe I've actually digressed. Uh, um, so I, um, yeah, I mean, having those relationships is it's one of the really things I'm proud of and, and I love about the this industry and this community even more than the industry to see the guys and the girls that I kind of came through with and I, I, I do believe and sorry if anyone's listening to this who believes they didn't get to where they wanted to get to but I believe those who came through in, the, in say my generation everyone who worked hard was talented and worked hard got you know their chances 
Yeah. I really believe that. And and, and sometimes it took longer. You know, Lawrence Mooney, um, he started around the same time as I did. And um, I, might, I might be wrong with the timeline, but his probably first break was like Denise. And, you know, mm-hmm. that's... Um, that's a, it was a nice gig for him, but you know it's like la- only really the last few years where I think Lawrence has really become mm. Lawrence Mooney mm. that we just adore and love, and um, and it's just been so great to see to see that. Uh, and, you know, Tom Gleason probably took you know even like even though Tom was doing like Skid House and I did that with him and and all of that, but again the last few years I think it's really been Tom Gleason's just become you know that's you are perfectly formed now. Yeah, 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 <laughs> and know? it takes time sometimes. It does take time, it? and yeah. I sometimes feel. That I perhaps was snatched a little bit too early. I mean, I did that gig in '96. So I did two gigs in '96. Did a dozen of twenty in '97. Probably did forty in '98. And the very start of '99, we did a rope pilot. So, but were you doing the loft live? Was yeah, it on so Channel Thirty One yeah. during that time? So that was sort of the precursor to Rove. That it, was like Rove Light, really, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah, and so Rove asked me at the. There's a room called Elbow Grease, which was an amazing room for it was like our generation's room it mm. was a typical night on a sunday night it would be will anderson me adam richard there's american also doing a little bit of triple j then so they they wouldn't be as regular as some of the others uh rove mm-hmm. michelle laurie corinne grant dave callan husey i mentioned husey but um you know like this is awesome bunch of people coming through roughly at the same time mm. And everyone, you just wanted to be as good as you could be. It was it was beautifully competitive. You know, it was that if um, Princess Diana, when she died, we all knew that everyone was going to be doing Princess Diana gear. Yeah, right. So bring your best Princess Diana yeah, gear. Yeah, that's cool. You know, and or even it was just about doing you, you know. Mm. And, and those were back in the days when, you know, social media's changed. I'm not sure if we'd get away with doing those kind of, that thirst. The thirst for me to kind of go, okay. Something bad has happened in the world. Let's get on stage and make some jokes about it. I mean, mm. I, my my take was always about the media, about I mean, the night she passed away. I remember my thing, the only thing I did, and I was like third on, and nobody had mentioned it yet. This is a day she died. It's a Sunday night, and um, I just said, "So, has anyone seen the news today? Anyone, anything happen? You know, <laughs> I've been I've been out. I was at the footy." And it just kind of like that enough. Let the just, air yeah, out of the room. Just that, you know. Yeah. And I remember doing, uh, there was the comedy club a few nights later when the funeral was on. That was a really tough. That was strange because that was felt like you just nobody wanted to laugh about it on mm, that night. Mm. So that was kind of. Um, I remember doing an improv comedy gig uh, the day after, like the morning or the lunchtime of September 11 happening that evening. Wow, yeah. And it was just, whew, yeah. it was just that weird kind of. What do we even? How can we even be doing this? What are we even? It's weird when those big monumental events happen and people still want to laugh. People still want to go out, but there's such a sense of like, ugh, how do I deal with this ickiness? We like, were, we, 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 sounds kind of weird. We got lucky with that because we on row. That was when it was on Tuesday night, and we got off air and we're in the green room mm. and. We watched it happen on TV in our, in our green room. Oh, wow. And I say we got lucky only because we're a comedy show that was dealing in, in still, you know, a the big news story of the day as far as a monologue goes. We had one week separation from yeah. from that happening to being back on air and kind of going, okay, what, how do we... 
do we have to deal with it in a week's time? Is it yeah. are people ready to move on as far as, you know? It gives or, you a bit of space to work out, okay, how, how are we going to approach this as opposed to being thrust into it at the time yeah. and thinking, oh, my goodness, it's, it's almost impossible not to be insensitive when you haven't got the benefit of a bit of time to have a think about things. That's why people judge things that happen live often, you know, even like the Oscars moment, you know, mm. something as, as kind of seemingly as frivolous as that. It's like when it's live, none of us have the benefit no. of hindsight. You know, I'm amazed that I haven't had more kind of, you know, faux pas live. Because mm. it's tough because you're grabbing for things, you know, yes, you come into things prepared, but often in the moment you're thinking, i got to fill a space. Yeah. And sometimes you fill a space with something that you go, oh, goodness, yeah. that I shouldn't have filled it with that. Yeah. <laughs> that <was laughs> you know, exactly the wrong thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's hard because you just want to get out of the break sometimes. Um, yeah. So what you were doing, the gigs and the and the stand-up, did you meet Rove on that circuit and then he put together that Channel 31 show? How yeah, so I, I met him at Elbow Grease. That's why I mentioned Elbow Grease actually before. So he tapped me on the shoulder after a gig and said that was great. And I'd seen him on stage before and we just went to another room and just started having a couple of beers and then we became really close mates really quickly. Like mm. it just we had I think similar kind of backgrounds and um we just liked each other a lot and after a little while he said to me, Listen, I'm, I've got this channel thirty one show. Do you want to come on and you can do whatever you like? And I had this idea for these uh, little kind of mockumentary sketches called I'm not sure if I had the name then, but it became Other People's Lives. And it was actually I'd shot one with my friend James Brash at the radio station just as just as for fun. Mm. And we shot this about this guy who, called Damien Wishbank who um, nobody rocked up to his 21st, and he's just like he's just he's just at his 21st, and he's Aww. like his, his parents didn't go because they had another 21st to go to. <laughs> 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 and, and like James is the DJ who ended up doing the speech, and, you know, and um, we just shot it at the radio station. And then uh, I said, well, I wouldn't mind doing more of those, to be honest. We can even show that one if you like. Yeah. You know? And uh, so I sh- we shot a couple. We shot a one about the guy who who deliberately went out and like, shot Australia's Funniest Home Videos, like, like, you know, kind of found, like, oh, right, like right, right. choreographed yeah. these accidents. <laughs> one, I know one, usually, like, it'd be Adam Richard and Kim Hope would help me out and Rove, and they would kind of play characters as well. And, and there was one where, like, we had nobody. It was mm. just me. So it ended up being me... As a journalist interviewing this Irish guy, which is me in gla- wearing glasses and a, and a, and a Guinness beanie, uh, about my long lost twin brother who'd gone missing. <laughs> so, like, it was just, like, it was just, it was like, we need, but it was just, like, it was so kind of great. And this is actually, funnily enough, I had a kind of a, a that kind of feeling when we did the budget shoot because we go into the budget, the federal budget, where we get locked in mm. and we have a rough idea of what we want. But because we're, at the, you know, at the mercy of, who wants the cameo and who doesn't and what, you know, Scott Morrison will be prepared to do with us. Mm. Um, we, we don't know. And it kind of felt like we're just grabbing stuff as we go along. And it kind of gave me that little feeling that I haven't, you know, I don't get to do that kind of shooting mm. uh, much anymore. Mm. So it was kind of fun. And that was the stuff with American Ross. I just running around the streets, just filming stuff. We In my first year in, uh, well, first full year of comedy, 1997, with James Brasher, my, uh, who I've called the funniest guy outside of comedy, he kind of came into comedy for a little bit I dragged him in and we had this thing called Crash and Burn. And we would uh, go at Elbow Grease at the start of the night and say, give us a genre, give us a uh, a line and give us a prop. And we will go away, make a movie and come back at the end of the night and show the movie on the screen. Wow. And, How um, long would you have? What would be the end of the night? Like two hours. Wow. So we'd have to like cool. edit in camera. So you just, you know, uh, um, and it would be rough. and But it would be like people loved it. 
Yeah. We did about I did six or seven of them in the end. Um, if was, you can deliver when you're doing that kind of improvised last minute, we've had no planning, and you actually deliver something that's even, you know, semi-good, there is such a payoff because yeah. you've got the additional kind of high-wire active. You guys know none of this existed two hours ago. Yeah. So if you have the skills to actually put something together that can look like a fully formed story, yeah. man, the, an audience goes wild for that stuff. Absolutely. And... and um they then they're invested because they help build it, you yeah. know, and, and it's something that's not going to exist outside of this night ever. Like we mm. can't show it on another night with getting that same reaction. Yeah. So here's something we shot that doesn't really make sense anymore. So uh, yeah, we we did about six or seven of them, and and that was. I think that's probably, you know, there's a lot of people that sometimes say, oh, you were just in the right place at the right time or it just so happened that you kind of managed to run into Rove and that ended up. But when you think about you still have to be the person that comes to the table with here is 19 ideas, here is an already existing segment, here is something, you know, that has to be that person that can actually come up with an idea and deliver on that idea to be the person that is in the room at the same time but that that actually goes somewhere, you know. So for Rove, I'm sure if he could have tapped somebody else on the shoulder and said, do you want to come in and do stuff? And they would have said, oh, yeah, what do you want me to do? I have no doubt that the fact that I've been able to generate ideas Mm. has been a big part of my longevity and survival, (laughs) even though, you know, hopefully around for many more years. But, you know, I mean, I can look at the the Rove early years and and these segments might not mean anything, but we did a segment called From the Vault, which is my idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, cliche Test was you know, my idea. A lot of the long, we did a, a segment where, about beard discrimination, it went for like nine minutes, you know, <laughs> that was my idea, and I wrote that. You know, <laughs> we all got killed off in the final episode. That was my, you know, like, yeah. and then, you know, uh, Peter Helly PI was, you know, my idea, and, and we uh, did a segment called Shovel Your Own Shit, where I'd interview other comedians in my shows and this like throw stuff at them it's just an improv game you know and uh, that was an idea that I had um, when I was doing a show called Shame with Michelle Laurie and Adam Richard and, and, and Kim Hope uh, sorry uh, Kim Hope and Adam Richard Michelle Laurie uh, was shiny mm. um, and even with you know project I'm always bringing the segment ideas orky talkies and mm-hmm. um, and uh, we did one last night called Witness of the Week great you yeah. know and it's, it's stupid <laughs> ideas but like, they're ideas you yeah. know um, and in that extent, the bigger ideas for, for movies and TV shows, It's a Date was uh, an idea that just, you know, uh, came out of me just loving watching people talk on screen. Mm. Um, so ideas are, you know, absolute key. Has it taken you a while to realise the value of that? Because I think when you do that quite naturally because it's an easy skill, not an easy skill but something that you kind of can't turn off, it's easy to undervalue mm. what that is because you think everybody can do this. And then it t- I think it takes sometimes people a long time to realise Oh, this doesn't come naturally for everybody. Oh, this is valuable. This yeah, thing. no, I, something really happened. I went through this like kind of like leadership camp when I was like twelve or thirteen, mm. and we're all sitting in a circle, and they told this story, and um, it was like, okay, there's a guy and a girl, and they're they're this and they're that, they're that and they're that. Everybody gives some ideas, and they wouldn't go their ideas, and they were a bit like, oh yeah, maybe they've got a dog, and, and maybe um, maybe it's in France. <laughs> and it got to me and I said well it's quite, it's quite obvious to me that they're blind but that was like everyone just went oh. yeah because it just kind of opened up this kind of like world of possibilities world of possibilities mm. it became more interesting mm. even your idea of following around a, a heroin addict or whatever like that's a, even that as a simple concept is a very 
you can see the story in that that is more complex yeah. than most people would come up with, you yeah. know? And I think when somebody who has good ideas sort of tells you their ideas, it becomes very obvious the difference between somebody who can come up with something that really would work and somebody that can't. Well, often people will say to me, uh, oh, yeah, I want to do a, a movie about surfing. Got this idea about a movie about surfing. What's the idea? It's about surfing. Yeah. That's not the idea. Yeah. That's just the world that that the idea might may live in. That's it. If you want to make a surfing, great. But you need you need what? what, Who are the characters? Mm. Who's the protagonist? Who you know? Where's the? Where are the obstacles? What's the intention? You know, like so. Mm. Yeah. It's. I I think I am very good in a room, uh, and I love the the early stages of of a a project where anything is possible, Mm -hmm. and you're like, let's. What can we do? What can we do? And I love that. Um, when you were doing uh, the Loft Live and that move to Rove Live, what was that process of that jump? Um, how long had you been doing the Loft Live for? Um, not that long. Like, I reckon I probably only did maybe eight episodes. Wow. Yeah. And so had somebody seen that on on? So the story 31? with Rove was Rob Brearley, who works here, mm-hmm. saw that and said, basically was like, saw Rove. That's who they were you know, really interested in mm. absolutely fair enough and they said that's you know let's chat to that guy so uh rob spoke to craig campbell who's still the executive producer yeah. you know here at the project and and let's get rove in and then i remember being out at a night and it was like me and i gotta say the early years are the best mm. like when i was doing stand-up comedy and i was like the younger one in the group, like the, the the new one coming through, yeah, I was almost like Indiana Jones with the hat. Like just, like, <laughs> I just got through the, the, before that generation kind of closed yeah. off and became the next generation. Michelle Laurie in her book called me like the puppy that everybody wanted to play with, <laughs> and and I remember like being in this room and it was um, the Missitchy girls, uh, Linda Hagar and uh, and Faye Younger, who were like just the hottest property then and uh, hilarious and still are hilarious. Uh, Will Anderson and somebody else and Rove. Mm-hmm. It's funny. Every time I went to the bar or went to the bathroom, somebody would come up to me and say, "Just so you know, I've got a project going on at the ABC, and it'd be great to have you on. You know, writing or you know, we can discuss what you want to do, but it'd be great to have you on. Everyone except Rove, and they all kind of, you know, and it was all great. I was just like, this is amazing. Mm. You know, this is I'm mean, like 18 months into this thing, and this is so good. And then I, I gave Rove a lift home. Mm. And we drove home and he said, he goes, listen, I kind of overheard a few people saying that they may have projects in a pipeline. Just promise me you won't sign anything. Because there's, there's something, I've also got something and it might be something that you might be really interested in and we would really love to have you, you know, involved. And a few weeks after that, I got a call from my manager, which I still hear, hear his voice, my manager, Kevin, who said, um, I think this is the phone call you've been waiting for. <gasps> oh, wow. <laughs> And I was like, um, I want that lotto. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and so we got invited to do the Rove pilot and, and um, it was amazing. Like to go to Channel 9, we were on like 11 o'clock, so we didn't feel any pressure. We yeah. were like kids at Disneyland and and it was set up like old Hollywood. Like you had like the, the um, cabins, you know, outside the studios and we would, I would write something. And then people would go and make it. And oh, it was wow. like, this is amazing. And like, so the ideas got more elaborate. Like I wrote this uh, one uh, sketch called uh, Would I Lie to You? And it was about this German game show. So we all had to learn German. I was, uh, Corinne learned it like that. I was, uh, my German, if you watch it, my German, it's like, it's faux German, you know, it's not real German. It's just obvious. And it's like, we're in a paddock and um, 
the, the show was about a, a wife who suspected her husband was cheating. So the, the husband was in this chair, played by Dave Callan, and she asked him like three questions about whether she was, he was cheating and if he lied. I was the host's. So I was like, and that's no lie. And like doing this weird kind of English-German thing with a megaphone. And eventually Dave lied. They had a lie detector strapped to him. And he lied three times and he just exploded. Oh, wow. You know? And like, like and the, you just wanted to make use of the special I effects I wanted department. explosions. Yeah. I, wanted, and I kept on writing like foreign language kind of sketches. And they yeah. said, okay, we have a few in English. Now, like there's one in Finnish that we did, and and um, what was the? Did they do just one pilot episode? But it was recorded. It wasn't on. You were saying you were on at eleven. Were you on live? We were on live, yeah. For your pilot episode, yeah. We used to have to wait for. Um, it wasn't Peter Hitchener, whoever it was doing the late news. We had to basically wait for, and sometimes they would run long, and and so sometimes we wouldn't be on until eleven thirty, but we would be live. So you were going once a week. Once or? a week. Wednesday, I, th- I think. And it no was, brief? No real brief, no. Like, there was a guest, there was a couch. Um, me and Dave Callan would do these silly kind of doctor sketches where, like, we would be in the studio with um, a table and he'd wear a, la- uh, a white lab coat and I would kind of come in and um, one of them was that I couldn't get a, a song out of my head and, you know, <laughs> what... <laughs> You know, um, you need to do that for Carrie Bickmore. She's got what's the song she's got stuck unskinny, in her head? Unskinny bop, unskinny, unskinny bop. <laughs> Cannot get it out of her head. I mean, the worst songs to have in your, uh, have in your head, I guess. But it, we, it was just such an amazing experience. And we sort of did the pilot early that year, and then like we did the series later that year, and then they let us go. They wanted to keep Rove, and Rove, to his undying credit, my career is is based on a lot of what happened. Uh, with Rove, he was offered. I know he was offered like a million dollars to wow. stay. He's a twenty-three-year-old, but to cast everybody else adrift, and he was fearful of being warehoused. But also, he knew. I think he had he had a good thing. He had a good team, and they said no, without the promise of anything. He wasn't walking away going, "Okay, Channel Ten will pick this up." That was not on the cards. So we waited quite a while. It was maybe not a year, but it was like. Six, seven months. Where I remember just checking in with him. What's anything going on? We'd meet up, have a coffee, have a beer, and so was he trying heard. to sell the concept to somebody else? Yeah, then? I mean, he could probably you know, give you more detail than, than I could, but he was, you know, and I, I wouldn't try to harass him, but it's, you know, and he would let me know how things were going. And my manager, we had the same manager, so he would kind of, you know, kind of let me know. But it was like. Why did you walk away, man? Yeah, <laughs> but I guess in that situation, as the person who is sort of the beneficiary of his benevolence, it can feel like you know he's done you a huge favor, which obviously going on in your career that is absolutely true. But I think from an individual's perspective, if you are the most desired piece of the puzzle at that point in time, some people just want the money and run. But for some people, it seems like the lion's share of the enjoyment would have been from what you guys were creating together. I think so. And I think with Rove, the last thing he wanted to do was be put into a game show that he didn't want to do. And that was the stage where people were paid good money to not do a lot. Mm. And Rove had no interest in that. Mm. With that said, a million dollars at 23 that's incredible. Amazing. You know, so, um, uh, and he often say this, you know, he enjoyed my segment. I'd go to the desk and he could almost clock off and just enjoy. He could almost watch, yeah. you know. But we had a great chemistry and he was the most generous person on air. Like he, there would be times when a joke would be this in, you know, like in the air between us. We could both see it and he always let me go for it. 
which is, is so uncommon. So, that is so nice because it is so uncommon. But I think when you work with people where you feel genuinely supported and cared for and, and working in that kind of environment where you're sitting down with all you want is for Rove to succeed in yeah. that situation. So you create an environment where nobody can fail because everybody's rooting for the other bloke. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I, I don't care who has that last line. Mm. If I'm on stage or if I am, uh, you know, on an ensemble, on, on the project, we're a team. Mm-hmm. And as long as the team's winning mm-hmm. and if, if it means that Waleed has a funny line to break, then that, that's, that's absolutely fine. If, if, there have been times where I'm like, I've got this joke and I'm, I'm waiting to get it out. I'm waiting <laughs> to get it out. I think it happened last night and, and, and well, I think it was Waleed. He had this joke and the audience loved it. Yeah. I was like, well, that's enough. That'll do. That's yeah. enough. You know, I will die with that joke <laughs> in my head. <laughs> And just stick another pin into the Waleed Voodoo doll. (laughs) Uh, So what the – then was there a – you were saying there was a bit of a gap before Channel 10 picked it up. Was that that phone call like, phew? I think we were kind of like, surely. Yeah, you knew it worked. Surely somebody – I mean, look at – Rove, like mm. surely he's somebody's going to give him a shot. Mm. Um, and Channel Ten, thankfully, uh, didn't. Yeah, the call was it was great, and we were so excited. Uh, and then it was tempered a little bit by, you know, it's going to be a different show, and so we didn't know what that meant initially. Because mm-hmm. um, we were like really proud of the Channel Nine show, and I I encourage anyone to look, you know, to look it up. It is on DVD. You know, you know, you probably get it very cheaply, but. It was a different kind of show. Like, I can't think of another show like it on Australian TV. Like it's just It's stuff you couldn't get away with now. No way. Yeah. Like, we couldn't even if we were at eight thirty on channel nine, we probably wouldn't get away with it. Yeah. You know? Um so it was just write whatever you want and, and, and people will, will make it happen. And um it was utterly glorious. But with that said, when we went to Channel Ten, the show got bigger and it was mm. um we still had a lot of fun and did a lot of, you know, kind of weird weird stuff as well but um you know uh it was yeah it was a fun time i said like i said rove was as as fun and as and as generous as you could hope for did your life change significantly once that show kicked off yeah yeah it, it did how'd you how'd you go with that i had moments i remember <laughs> i don't think i've ever told anyone there's people who were there no i remember a lot of people coming up to me at flemington race course and being like really way too excited was, at the end of the day people were a bit pissed mm. And I actually like this burst into tears. Yeah. This is scary. It's terrifying to go from never having experienced that to because it's completely unnatural. Yeah. And I'm not somebody who, you know, this may come as a shock, Rachel. I don't walk down <laughs> Chapel Street kind of with a strut with a bit of a look at me kind of posture. You know, like I, I don't like and I still yeah. don't like it. Husey, uh, who I love and he's a great mate. <laughs> he, he only half jokes that he doesn't wear sunglasses because he wants people to recognise him. Yeah, right. You know, he's very comfortable with that. Mm. I, I, I'm not. I'm not saying if you're listening, don't ever approach me at mm. all. Like, mm. you know, if you're friendly and you're, you're not, but some not yelling, he's yeah. <laughs> always yeah. nice. The fame element was never a thing. I loved stand-up comedy. I loved the idea of making movies. You know, and that's where where people make that argument about. Well, and I don't get papped at all, so this is not coming you're from lucky. my own uh, with my own agenda. But when people say, "Well, you signed up for it," mm. so like, no, you didn't sign up no. for that. You signed up because you wanted to make people laugh, mm. or you wanted to be a journalist, or you you know whatever it was. You're really lucky to not get papped because your profile is big and that and that to I've said this a number of times on the podcast, but I really think that is the holy grail to be able to do what you love and to be able to go about your business. Yeah, I heard you speak about to Loz, uh, mm. Lawrence about it, and it's I'm very I'm very lucky. I mean, I'm not like I said, I'm not 
uh, I work with uh, Carrie, who is um, has is because she sneezes and every like yeah, there's a story about it's it. It's ridiculous. Yeah, and I see uh, she handles it very well, but. You know, I know. You know, it can get to her as it mm. would. Of course, um, it's ridiculous what some of the stuff she because has. Because the through. thing about that, and I've spoken to a, a number of people about this, is that you get to a point where they feel like they need to second guess what they're saying. And I think everybody who's made it to a certain point, and Carrie is a great example of this. You know, people like her because she is so her. You know, you feel yeah. like you're getting the exact. There's no filter between the head and the brain, and what she, she's happy to be open, honest about who she is, what she's experienced, all of that kind of stuff. And I think that's what resonates with viewers with listeners but as soon as you start to you know really feel the pain of the the news media dissecting everything you do which is unavoidable because we are all human beings you yeah. cannot have that much attention thrown on you and not to start to think oh goodness is it me should i adjust then all of a sudden you start to take away all of those wonderful elements of you yeah. that make you so Attractive to viewers and things, and so she's already giving enough. Yes, yes. What more do you want? Yeah. Like really, like there was an article that she wrote, and it was about board games, and the 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 headline on it was, uh, "When people play board games, people change," or something like that. It was quite a representative of the article, but then it goes to online, mm. and the headline online became the thing that's tearing Carrie's family apart. Oh god, <laughs> like that's. <laughs> It's such a stretch. Considering, like the pressure, that's not fair. No. It's not fair on somebody. And especially because it is quite amazing how few people read the article and how, like, they read the headline, they put all of their opinions and their attitude and their responses on Twitter into that headline, and they read nothing of what goes below it. And a mere paragraph will make you realize, oh, God, that headline had nothing to do with that. But we're in the clickbait culture, and nobody's going to click on a Carrie Plays board games. No. Exactly right. So well, you know. maybe it's not worth putting on your on, online. You know, like <laughs> exactly. So you know, it's hard not to become a little bit protective. You know, when you sitting next to this woman who has to go through this, and Waleed as well. Who mm. um, there's an uglier even there's an uglier side to what he has to put up with. Mm. Um, no, I'm very, very fortunate. And to be honest, with the re, the, the the gold Logan on, that was that was a bit kind of like I'm not sure if I want this because I don't want to. Like, I'm attention. comfortable with where I am. I my thing has kind of been going under the radar a little bit. Still working. You know, I've been employed now. Well, I started 21 years ago, 99. So, like, 18 years. Mm. I think I had one year where I was kind of like this floating about between then. So, I've been very lucky. But I've floated under the radar. I think that's the best place to be. So, over the time, you've done just about everything. The producing, directing, the writing, the stand-up, the radio, TV. Is there any one thing that you think, this is what I want to grow old doing? I, I've fallen in love, and I'm not just saying this because you, you didn't mention it, but the, the thing, the, the thing that I've recently discovered, and I'm falling in love with, is I, I wrote a kids book. Oh, it's so good. And yeah, but you, you, you read it. Yeah, yeah. but you, so you, you gave me, you got in touch with me about that. That was nice, <laughs> yeah. and that's not why I love the podcast either. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like you felt. Oh God, I better, have, I better, I better give the podcast a oh, listen. Um, so I wrote a, a, a kids book and have fallen in love with the industry and the feeling that comes back at you when you put something like that out there into the world. Um, you know, it went really well. Uh, it's still going really well. It's got Frankie Fish in the Sonic Suitcase. Get um, it, it's great. And I just like seeing people, you know, having people send you photos of their kids reading it and uh, the, the kids will write reviews 
Um, and it's usually they give you like four and a half out of five stars or nine and a half out of five stars. I always leave half a star <laughs> off just, you know, just to keep you honest. Um, and then going to the schools and doing readings, it's it's like, it's kind of magical. And uh, it's a three book deal. We're already talking about extending that and also maybe doing some other picture books. And I just, I I love it. And still not ready to give away my project share yet. Sorry, Tommy Little, I know you want it. Um, <laughs> but I, um, and you know, continue doing stand up. Uh, I want to make that film. Um, the dream has always been for me and my wife that we can go to Europe and kind of, you know, do the whole stand a vineyard yeah. and write. Yeah. Um, what a magical dream. Yeah. And also just, you know, for all, all we've been speaking about, about, you know, the media and how harsh they can be. And quite often you when you're offering your opinion, you're not 100% how, sure how it's going to be taken. And there are a whole bunch of issues and individuals that can see something that you say and turn it around and tweet it at you. When you are dealing with kids... And you're sitting down and reading them a great story, or you write them a book. You got none of that. Yeah. You've just got genuine joy. Kids that just want to read and be lost in a story, who aren't influenced by all of that ickiness that we get when we get into adulthood, and it's just magic. And you're putting something really this completely positive. You know, mm. it's positive. It's got it's got a, a good messaging without being uh, laboured. And to see when I gave it to my eight year old, and I was reading to him you know, as I was writing it, but to see him with the book. To see the pride, I usually, you know, we look at our kids with pride, but to see the pride coming back mm. is really, it was really special. What do you think is the best and the worst part about the business? Uh, the best part is we get to do it um, <laughs> and create. Like I've always loved the idea, like seeing a piece of paper as a kid. I used to be, I, I was the kid who would be in my room writing drawing, coming up with short stories, doing extra creative essays that I didn't need to do because I'd, I'd, I'd do three in the hand in the one that I like the most. Wow. You know, I would write lyrics to songs. I had a f- fake bands that would write like, uh, you know, a song uh, album list. Like, wow. yeah, there's one called um, the, the Jacobins, which were like the first political party in France. <laughs> yeah. And that was my, that, that was my, that was my Goodness. band name. That was my band name. And yeah. I would have, you know, and the one project that I, you know, kind of had this kind of thing of doing, uh, dream of doing, was where I try to write lyrics and like team up with musicians to see, you know. And I was thinking maybe I should get other comedians to do like write a song each, but it can't be it can't be ironic and it can't be kind of whimsy. It has to be like genuinely heartfelt and like team people up with different musicians and kind of see what they can they can produce. I did hear Kate Langbrook did one with Casey Chambers on Nova years ago, and oh, it was yeah. really lovely. Yeah. And I, I must say, I'd already had the idea, but I thought, well, that's that's a good example of like that's a textbook example of what this idea was about. Did your parents know you were going to do this, being that kind of kid? I think so. Yeah, they yeah. always, and even like friends of the family, Pete's always got a pen and paper in his hands, and always got a notebook, and I've got notebooks kind of everywhere. I still love if I go to an airport, I have to buy a notebook and a yes. pen, and I go to the airport a lot. So <laughs> it's just like there's nothing more exciting than a blank sheet of paper I love hearing the stories doing this podcast hearing the stories and just seeing there is a similarity between the people that have made it in this business in a creative way and it is that yeah. sort of obsessive production that sort of I can make I need to make this stuff even when I was little I needed to make stuff just because and that's the thing and, that, and everybody's kind of thinking oh it'd be great to be famous I mean the idea of fame occurs to you at some point mm. I remember sitting on trains going one day I'm going to be the most famous person on this train if, this, if, if these people like meet in 30 years I'll be the one they'll want to come up to and say hello to you know I remember having that thought but with that said it was always about the creative and and, and producing stuff yeah Um, I used to interview myself on the toilet 
<laughs> yeah, I used to pretend I was in a talk show interviewing myself about my life and stuff and I'd always do it on the toilet. You should pitch that, you know. <laughs> Maybe you could have like, instead of like, you know, you have like a guest, so it's not you interviewing you, but you have a bidet in there as well. <laughs> so your guest comes in on the bidet. <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a slightly less family-friendly version of comedians in cars getting coffee, you know. It's like... Comedians cleaning their ass. <laughs> yeah. After coffee. After coffee. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, we're at, we're down to the final five questions. Your biggest regret over the years? Uh, my biggest regret. I I, I gotta say I don't have too many of them. There was a show on Channel Seven, which is I guess my one misfire on TV, um, called The Bounce, which is an AFL show. And I don't necessarily have regret. I just regret that it didn't work. But at the mm. same time, if that didn't work, then I don't get to be on the project. You know, mm. I heard Larry kind of speak about you need to have failures. And I've, I've been very lucky. You know, uh, Rove Live, uh, Skid House ran for three seasons. Uh, before the game ran for 12. It's a date. Had a very successful two seasons, which is what we kind of were happy to do. Um, the project now, um, I'm four years into that on a show that's been around for seven years, seven, eight years. So... It's, I've been very lucky. Mm. Uh, the um, the bounce, I think, was a show that started off really well um, as an AFL based show. I'd already created another one called Before the Game, and I thought, imagine if I could create two AFL shows. That would be amazing. And I wasn't really doing anything when they rang and asked if I wanted to be involved. So I was like, yep. Yeah. And I was I'm really proud of it. There's some sketches we did on that show that uh, I think some of the best. There's one about a guy who painted his his face yellow and brown for the Hawthorne Premiership Grand Final and then he, he used the wrong paint and he couldn't get the paint off so then he has to live with this on his wedding day we had wedding shots of him you know his kids are scared of him and um, you know it's one of my favourite sketches I've ever written so it's, I'm really proud about that show we had a really good first two weeks not a bad third and then MasterChef started on, on Channel 10 where I work now and was the juggernaut that wiped yeah. us off and seven don't have the patience that ten do and then mm. they just went okay it's time now what what's your dream gig? I assume it might be writing books in a vineyard. In <laughs> yeah, well, it's, yeah, that's probably it. I was actually thinking. I'm not sure. There's lots of ideas that I have, and 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 I do want to get that one we've kind of cryptically spoke spoken about um, going. Um, but yeah, I, I think this guy way and write, and and I just want to produce stuff. When I say not as necessarily the producer, although that you tend to be the producer if you if you do kind of create it, and um, but I just want to kind of get stuff made, mm. and I can see eventually, you know, I'll be off screen. And I had one year off screen, which was quite interesting. What I've found about that, I was relieved because I was okay with it, which was really nice. It's the first time in like at that stage. 12 years or whatever that I'm not on screen and it's like this is okay this is good it's a great place so at some point I think I'll probably say okay I don't need to be on screen anymore I'll work at writing the books and um and trying to help other people get stuff made. Mm. Uh, well, I'm going to assume that the big idea that you you haven't got up is is actually the one that we're not going to talk about, but that watch this space will watch this space. Yeah. Uh, if you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? Um, that's the scariest question. <laughs> uh, I'd be a heckler. Um, um, maybe uh, a sports journo. Oh yeah, because you, know? you love your sport, don't you? I You're do. always watching. You and Waleed are always watching, like getting excited over replays of goals and things. <laughs> I'm like, where? Well, how can I mean? I couldn't watch it the first time, but you already know what happened. Yeah, I'm a very passionate Collingwood uh, fan, and actually, my boyfriend will kill me if I do not say at least once, Strawny. Strawny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, one of the regrets. Actually, we had we, we wrote a Strawny movie. Oh, really? Yeah, and like you know, I had there was a production. 
production company assigned and wrote a script and I loved the script like it was funny and this it just kind of went away I think we kind of thought these things take a lot uh, you know of energy to put a movie out there is there the market to do it really as much as big as AFL is there's no international possibilities for this yeah um, uh, north of the border love it yeah though. and I thought it was really funny it was about Strawny he stole the um, 2010 Premiership Cup um, <laughs> and then he was arrested for it and the only person he would speak to was Mike Sheehan, uh, the, <laughs> right. the, the, the doyen of, of journalists. And he does a segment called Open Mic. So he, he, he ended up being based around this open mic session in jail with Mike Sheehan and Strawny. And the rest oh, that's cool. And through flashbacks and stuff like that. It was, it was kind of – it was – Really cool. Oh, you have to do that. Yeah, and we're gonna have like I think you know Luke McGregor was gonna be his like cousin, and like uh, one no Ronnie Chang was gonna be his cousin, and like Luke McGregor was gonna be his manager, and you know it was and those guys were you know just babies, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then that was the idea. It just kind of weirdly it wasn't like I think both me and the production company just went. Ah, oh, I'm not sure if either had the absolute passion. Yeah, and you got away to get anything to get like a. A movie particularly made, you've got to have so much passion yeah. for it. Yeah, like, definitely. Bruce Springsteen said, said something amazing, you know, heard recently, which is your yeah, ambition has to outweigh your fear. You need to really want it. Mm. Yeah. And there has to be sort of no other path that you can see apart from that getting made. You yeah. know, you have to go, yes, this is this. I know it's going to be hard, but there, I just cannot not have this made right now. And until you feel yeah, that. Eventually yeah. it blinds you. Like, mm. it's, like you become like. It, you get tunnel vision about a project and that's mm. when you feel like okay this is the one this yeah, is, it's totally. time to press go uh, and finally your advice to people wanting to get into the business uh, as Lauren said just do it and get on stage as much as you can flying hours are the most important thing and uh, ideas I'll just repeat what Ross told me ideas is the best advice I've, I've been given ideas are king they're more important than punchlines try to be good at punchlines as well but um, <laughs> if you're a comedian but um, <laughs> no ideas don't let anyone ask you if you have an idea for something and, and not have an answer. And if you ask an audience where they're from, <laughs> have something yeah. to say. <laughs> just if you're a comedian starting out, just <laughs> study the mailway. Go easy on the audience participation. <laughs> Yeah, leave it to the professionals. Um, Pete, right now we are sitting on opposite sides of the table, but I'm going to give you the biggest squeezy hug when we are done because I really appreciate your time. It was awesome having you on the show. I'll squeeze back. It'll all be appropriate and above board. But I will, uh, no, thank you. Congratulations. I think it's a great uh, thing that you're doing. Uh, there's not enough... Um, it's hard because people do often ask me how I got into television. How do you get into television? And I feel like I, there are so many different doors yeah. that you can actually enter from. And I feel like I, I entered from you know, through stand-up comedy and that's not necessarily the right way for everyone. So do whatever you can. like um, Watch as much, read as much, uh, meet as many people as you can. And you know you need a little bit of luck along the way. You need a few champions. I had some champions. Um, a few we've already mentioned, and um, want to do it for the right reasons. And I think you've given uh, sort of teenagers everywhere a great excuse when their parents tell them to get away from the television. Research, Mom. research. Peter Hellier said. <laughs> Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Raj. Thanks for listening to You've Got to Start Somewhere. Thanks. To subscribe to the podcast, check out other episodes, and keep up to date, head to you've got to start somewhere dot com. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the podcast and a big thank you if you are one of the delightful humans 
who has sent me an email or a tweet or left a review in iTunes to say that you are enjoying the show. Big shout out to Mike Boyd and Philo who have recently left reviews. I really appreciate the feedback and I'm so chuffed that you're loving the chats just as much as I am loving to do them. Next week, I am so excited about Lee Sales, the host of 7.30 on the ABC. She is going to be joining me for a chat. I have been a huge fan of her work for a long time. We're going to be sitting down and talking about what has been a very successful career and the path she took to hosting the ABC's flagship current affairs program. Usually in this section of the show, I drop a bit of audio from the upcoming episode as a little teaser, but we did reference something in this episode that I wanted to play here, and that is the sketch that Merrick Watts and Peter Hellier did on the show that I used to do with Merrick and Jules on Triple M, where they reenacted their very first shift on Plenty Valley FM. It is hilarious. I have dived deep into my archives to find it, and I thought, what better way to finish up a great chat with a great man than this? I'll see you next week. That was an... That was a new artist called Lenny Kravitz with his song, Are You Going To Go My Way? You're on Plenty Valley FM with Merrick hey, and, hey. And, Pete, and Peter. Um, hey, and the, the time is um, Sorry. Uh, a bit after lunch. Hey, Mez, remember? It's actually, it's 1.25. Okay. Sorry. Good to get that right. Mez, you you remember when we were back at high school? Yeah, that was just a few weeks ago. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. remember how when the emergency teacher left the room and like you'd play a trick on them? Yeah, I sure do. Classic, <laughs> classic, <laughs> classic. Uh, later on in the show, um, our friend James is coming in. Oh, is he? Hey, Mez, when you were a kid and you got like a BMX got a flat tire and you had to push it home and your friends would laugh at you, do you remember that? <laughs> classic. Uh, I never, I never had a puncture. Uh, Pete, you've got an ad to read. Oh, sure do, Mez. Presky, press the CDs. Yep. Some music. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Press it. It's just hang on. on the left. Hang on. Okay. Okay. If you're looking for garden supplies, then there's only one place in the Diamond Valley you should go to. Sorry, it's in the page. Thanks, yes, I've put it on the other side. Oh. Wait, 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 wait. I've read this before. Valley supplies on Bond Street, they're really good. You reckon? My dad reckons this shit. Um, but um, a little bit later on the show, we've got some more really good music. I've got um uh, a new song from Nirvana, um, "Rape Me." Oh, it's we went. No, they. Man, the, the management said we can't. We can't play that song anymore. Oh, really? Yeah, we got to play um the Hootie and the Blowfish. I've only got two CDs. I only brought two two CDs in. You were supposed. To- I don't have a lot of CDs. Are they mixed ones? Did you bring Summer Breaks 83? Throbbing 84? No. You bring those ones because they're the ones that have the all the different songs. You can't just bring playing Nirvana all the time. Time is, um, oh, it's about three, three, four minutes after. And it's 27 degrees. Oh, that's in Sydney. This weekend, the school fight's on. Are you going, Mez? No, I'm too old for that. Uh, me too. Rape me again.